It is our privilege to bring to you the following message, supported by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. This message was recorded during our normal Sunday morning service times. Pastor Rick Foster is serving as our interim senior pastor here at Rancho Baptist Church. As Pastor Rick comes to an end of this great study in Ruth, today he's looking at chapter 4, verses 13 to 22. He has a surprise ending for us of this uncommon story in our common everyday lives. Let's join Rick for his sermon entitled, Do a Background Check. Here's Rick. What comes to mind when you hear the term impact player? Well, if you've been watching March Madness, you know that in that arena anyway, impact players are the kinds of people that when they step out onto the athletic field or court, their very presence changes the game. Now, collegiate or professional teams have lots of very skilled and talented athletes. But impact players are a very rare breed. Because they not only have superior, superior athletic skills, they also possess some intangibles. For example, they've, typically they've got a mental toughness. They have a heart that plays with enthusiasm and intensity. They have a drive that just won't quit until the clock has gone all the way down to zeros. They play to win instead of playing not to lose. On and off the field, they are willing to pay a price that few others are willing to pay. Their passion is so contagious, it raises the performance of their teammates around them. Those are just a few of the intangibles. Now, when an impact player enters the game, you normally see the other team begin to make adjustments on their offense or on their defense. Everyone is aware of where they are on the field, and often opposing coaches will run plays away from their position. That's in sports. But impact players are found in other places besides just sports. We see them out in the marketplace as well. Jeffrey Fox describes them like this. He says, they bring in customers. They energize the sales force. They restructure an underperforming department. They speed up the innovation process. They solve the late shipping problem. An impact player will do the necessary but noxious tasks that nobody else wants to do. They'll get their hands dirty. They'll pick up a shovel and start shoveling. They'll open the store early and close late. They'll deliver product on their way home. They'll deal tirelessly with irate customers. They'll even make a service call on Christmas Eve. Hmm. Impact players. So here's a question I have for you this morning. Would that term ever be used to describe you? Now, your knee-jerk reaction might immediately be, Rick, me? You've got to be kidding. I'm nothing special. I have a small life of, of little importance. I have no platform, no significant accomplishments to my credit. No one is watching me. Few, if anybody, ever listens to me. And if you only knew my past and where I've been and what I've done, on and on. Is that how you think this morning? If it is, then this morning is for you. God's impact players, they are not defined the way the world typically defines them in sports or business contexts, but they are game changers, and the effect that they have is powerful. Some are men, some are women. 
they covered the, the, the entire age uh, spectrum. They, they come from every social strata. Some have received great educations and some have very little schooling at all. But the impact that they leave is not measured by insignificant trophies of scoreboards or championship rings. Rather, their powerful story changes history. And here's the incredible irony about it all. Most of the impact players that God uses did not know they were making much of a difference. So, how do we know, though? How do we really know that God uses average, normal people like us who in the midst of the routines of our normal, ordinary stories will make a dramatic impact on history? How do we know that? Well, the surprising conclusion to the book of Ruth answers that question. So grab your Bibles, if you would, this morning. Open back up to Ruth chapter 4. And we're going to look at the final verses from verse 13 down to verse 22. And as we approach these final verses, I want you to notice how the author starts pulling together all the loose threads that have been hanging out there for us. From verse 13 to verse, or the first part of verse 17, in that section, we can see the satisfying conclusion. Follow along. Verse 13, Ruth chapter 4. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Oh, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. Wow, what a satisfying conclusion. Now, how satisfying is it for Ruth? Well, she ends up with a godly, loving husband and the stability of now a home. Remember, not too long ago, she was dumpster diving. Now she's dancing as a bride. Recently, she was gleaning on her hands and knees. Now she's changing diapers. (laughs) It's a satisfying conclusion for Naomi. She gets a grandson who will continue the family name. Her heritage is assured. She who was struggling with bitterness is feeling blessed at this point. Deep, deep wounds we can sense are being healed inside of her. And it's a satisfying conclusion for Boaz. He gets a young godly wife. His reputation in the community has just skyrocketed as people respect him for his gracious and compassionate decision to have his comfortable, settled lifestyle completely upset by becoming a kinsman redeemer. And so as as the book of Ruth comes to a close, Naomi is rocking baby Obed. (laughs) Everyone's got a warm glow about it, how this one, the wonderful way it's all turned out. And we can read this final scene in in the story and our (coughs) response, excuse me, our response can be, ah, whereas God wants it to be, whoa! Because most of us casually look at the final five verses and what do we have there? A genealogy. And what do we typically do with genealogies? 
Skip it. Let's move on to the good stuff. But if we do that, we will miss the whole point of why the book of Ruth was written. Because these individuals are game changers. These are God's impact players. And the reason the book ends with a genealogy is to establish the astonishing repercussion that you think you may know, but you may not. This genealogy in the last verses reminds us that each of our lives can be like a stone thrown into a pond. As it hits the water, it creates ripples that spread across the surface and it rocks everything in that pond. See, there is something here we can't afford to miss. Look at verses 18 to 22. Here's the genealogy. And based upon the story that we've just come through, Naturally, we would say, well, where is Boaz in this? Well, where is Boaz's name in all this? Well, it's kind of in the middle there, stuck in the middle. Well, why is it in the middle? Because the writer wants us to know that something very important has gone on before this story and something has come after this story. Okay, so let's go there this morning for a few minutes. First of all, notice this genealogy points us backwards. And we are reminded of several key points in this genealogy that is in the heritage of Boaz. Please note where it starts. Verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Boaz is in the family line of Perez. So, well, Perez was a son of Judah. Judah was one of the fathers of the original 12 tribes of Israel. But the family line of Perez was founded in scandal. Go back sometime on your own. Read about it in Genesis 38, where Judah's Judah's oldest son is a man by the name of Ur. Ur married a woman by the name of Tamar and then died. No kids. Well, Judah's next son was supposed to take Tamar and raise up a son to replace the dad. He wouldn't do it, so he dies. Judah then will not give his third son to be married to Tamar out of fear that he too will die. Folks, this woman is bad luck. But notice, there is a refusal to be a kinsman redeemer. Hold that thought. So what does Tamar do? In short, she disguises herself as a prostitute, entices Judah, her father-in-law, to sleep with her. She then becomes pregnant by him and has a son, Perez. Now, that is not exactly the kind of memories that get retold at family reunions, is it? But that is public knowledge of Boaz's heritage. A rather scandalous part of it, would you not agree? So hang on to that right now. Let's add some more to it. There's more to be seen here. Keep your finger in Ruth 4. Jump all the way to the very first page of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 1, we have the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And I want us to look at just a couple of verses, not the whole thing. Boy, that would wipe us all out. But just a few verses, starting at verse 3. Follow along as I read. 
So Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab, the father of Nashon. By the way, if you ever have to read publicly and you get into a section of scripture where there is a bunch of Old Testament names, nobody knows how to pronounce them, so just do the best you can and everybody will believe you. That's just a sidelight there. And Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Stop. Boaz's mother was Rahab. Who's that? She was the woman who lived in the city of Jericho when Israel first came to conquer the land. And you know the story well. Spies were sent into the city to understand how to conquer it. The king of that city found out spies were there. So Rahab protects them by hiding them. And what was her occupation? A prostitute. Do you see any reoccurring themes going on here in in Boaz's background? So after the city of Jericho falls, Boaz's dad marries Rahab. Okay, why are we given all this kind of information? Because think of the way it would have shaped Boaz. First, he would know that in his family history, Judah, the father of their tribe, was a man who would always be remembered for not being willing to take on the role of a kinsman redeemer and raise up a son for the family. Judah was forced to do it. Second, Boaz would also understand the feelings of a foreigner trying to fit into the community of Israel because his mother was not even Jewish, but she had a strong faith and belief in God and Boaz's dad was so impressed by that, he married her. Third, prostitutes are a reoccurring theme in his heritage. Embarrassing? Shameful? See, Boaz had every reason to feel limited by his past. Yet he is determined not to repeat what his forefathers had done. And he was also so impressed by the determined faith of Ruth, who, like his mother, was a foreigner in Israel. Like father, like son. My friends, our potential for being an impact player starts right here. Right here. Oh, how we are so like Boaz. But are we letting our past, even the distant past of our extended family, hold us back? Or is God calling you this day to stand up and by an act of faith break our generational sin that will send redemptive ripples across the coming generation? And could it be that those embarrassing family issues that are rarely talked about among your family but are so tender as wounds inside your own heart have given you a sensitivity, though, to come alongside other hurting people because you can identify with their pain? See, back in Ruth 4, that's why the genealogy points us, first of all, backwards. But it does more than just give us a background check on Boaz. The genealogy also points us forward. Verse 21, verse 22. So Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. 
So the quiet faithfulness of these people is the background to David. They were willing to trust God and risk obedience, and the ripples of that produced a man who would become or would bring revival and prominence to Israel as it ushered in a godly king. And not only that, but their faithfulness is the background to Jesus Christ. The genealogy in Matthew, you know, takes us all the way from David, all the way then, all the way up to Jesus Christ. So the genealogy there shows that the obedient, God-trusting choices of these average, normal people going about the routines of life somehow blended them into God's larger story that brought to us the King of Kings. So what does that tell us? God has astonishing plans for average people that makes their lives uncommon. Again, one last time, let's remember the eclectic mixture of the people that we've been looking at over these last few weeks. We've got Ruth, an outsider, a recent believer. Most of the time she is clueless, but she is faithful and she is brave with what little she knows. Naomi, an older widow, Battling fear, battling bitterness. She's destitute, and in her spiritual wrestling, we also see she is determined. Boaz, a confirmed bachelor with less than a dignified heritage. Sure, he's got money, but more than that, we see that he's got a motivation to want to please the Lord. And the book of Ruth reminds us that God wants to blend our smaller stories, again, into his larger story. And not only will he show his grace and mercy in our lives now, but he has plans that will span generations. And he invites us to believe that the ripples of our lives can be a part of those plans when we're willing to trust his heart and obey him. Back in 1963, Edward Lawrence proposed a theory to the New York Academy of Science that the flapping of a butterfly wing in Brazil could create a hurricane on the other side of the world. At first, his theory was laughed at, but now it is totally accepted as the butterfly effect, that an initial small movement of molecules, or even a relatively minor choice by a person, can set in motion a series of events that have enormous impact. Give me an example. Moses and Susan Carver, German immigrants living in Diamond, Missouri, when in 1865 Quantrill's raiders came through, burned their barn, killed a bunch of people, took some others hostages, including their friend Mary and her little baby son, George. Well, Moses immediately sent word through the neighbors and nearby towns, and he was able to set up a meeting in the middle of the night with the raiders. He brought along his only horse and exchanged it for baby, George. Mary was already dead, and so they raised George as their own son and gave him the name that you probably know well, George Washington Carver. Now, when Carver was 19 years old, he was a student at Iowa State University, and his dairy sciences professor had a six-year-old little boy who was allowed on weekends to go out with Carver on his botanical expeditions. Carver gave that little boy a love for plants and a vision for what they could do for humanity. 
And, of course, we know that George Washington Carver developed, what is it, 266 uses for peanuts and, what, 88 things we enjoy from the sweet potato. Now, that little boy, though, Henry Wallace, Henry eventually became the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture and even served one term as vice president under Franklin Roosevelt. And during his term, he hired another young man by the name of Norman Borlag to set up a station in Mexico whose sole purpose was to develop hybrid corn and wheat seed that would grow in arid conditions. Well, Norman's work succeeded wildly. And his hybridized, high-yield, disease-resistant corn and wheat is still even used today in the Dust Bowl of West Africa, in our own Southwest, in Central and South America, and even on the plains of Siberia. That specific seed that Norman developed flourishes and regenerates where no seed has ever thrived before. And through the years, it's been estimated that Norman's work has saved over 2 billion lives from famine. All because four generations earlier by the compassionate choices of an average farmer. Moses to George to Henry to Norman. And how many lives have been saved because of the compassionate act of an ordinary farmer in Bethlehem? Boaz to Obed to Jesse to David, and to Jesus Christ. As we close our study of the book of Ruth, I'd like for us to consider how the impact of this story is not for its entertaining value, but for its transforming value in our lives. Ruth was given to dramatically change the way we view our life's journey changes it. I mean, who can fathom what God is up to? How surprising the eternal impact of our quiet expressions of faith, just in the routines. See, for the measurement of my faith is really less about my inheritance to correct doctrinal statements as about more my deep trust in God's heart that's seen in my behavior. So let's allow our study to conclude here in Ruth to lead us to ask some final questions about our story. In fact, how has this biblical story of Ruth changed my view of my smaller story? I don't know about you, but I love the G.R. Tolkien Lord of the Rings trilogy. I think I've probably read that series of three books at least a dozen times, and I own the three-set DVD series of the movies. I just really enjoy it. And about halfway through their journey, um, following a great deal of hardship and expecting a great deal more, Frodo's beloved friend and servant, Sam Gamgee, wonders out loud. And he says, what sort of story have we fallen into? Do I believe and trust that my Heavenly Father is actively involved in my smaller story? Or am I being sucked into this world's thinking that life is just coincidence and it's completely random? Or am I looking for His quiet grace moving in all the details of my journey? 
Do I believe that he wants to blend my smaller story into his larger story, even when I can't see it, I can't explain it? Do I trust that something good and beautiful is unfolding? Do I trust in the heart of Jesus, who was once described in Mark chapter 7 and verse 37 as, He has done all things well. Is He doing that in my story? Do I believe that? Or here's another question. How has this biblical story changed my view of the unique setting of my story? I mean, do I believe and trust that God has personally built the scene that I'm currently living within? That my life here in Riverside County with commuting to work or being in school or the ages and stages of my kids or being retired or being unemployed or being underemployed or my health challenges or being single, being married, does my faith accept all those details as part of God's sovereign orchestration of my scene, my setting? And in my unique setting... Am I responding in faith to the blessed times and the brutal times? How does my faith show itself when I've got confusion or times when I've got clarity? When my response to life is, why, Lord? Or when my response to life is, wow, Lord. Third, how does this biblical story change my view of the characters in my story? Do I believe and trust that he has placed the various people around me with design to interact with? Am I responding in faith to the needs that I observe in them? Which means am I giving them extravagant grace? Am I willing to have my life turned upside down because of radical obedience? Do I, do I nudge others in faith? Do I commend others when I see their faithful expressions of faith? Or let me give you one more, a fourth one. How has this biblical story of Ruth changed my view about the plot line of my story? Do I believe and trust that the drama I am in the middle of is going somewhere with purpose and intention? Am I aware that there is an author with a capital A over my story who wants me to enter into the adventure and let him lead? Am I responding in faith by being faithful even in the little details of my life because I believe it matters? Do I believe that God is not limited by what limits me, that he can supernaturally change not only my circumstances but my heart and the heart of those around me? See, those questions really then bring us to the point of saying, what do I believe? What am I trusting in about my smaller story, its setting, its characters, its plot line? One of my favorite Christian singers and songwriters is Laura Story. She's given us songs that we sing here on Sunday morning, Mighty to Save, Indescribable, are a few of them. One of her lesser-known stories or songs is called God of Every Story. Now, I don't normally do this, but let me read some of her lyrics to you. Amy, she lives down the street, and her husband left her just last week. She feels like giving up, but she's holding on to hope. 
John lost his job six months ago. He's got a wife and three kids at home. Doesn't know what to do. He's praying for a breakthrough. Some want to raise a fist up high, blame all the hard things on the Father in the sky, but He hears when we call. We can trust Him through it all. For He's the God of every story. He sees each tear that falls. We may not understand, but one thing is certain. He is faithful. He's a faithful God. Pray with me, would you? Father, this morning we want to thank you that you are a faithful God. We also want to thank you that in Ruth we have seen a love story. A love story that's more than between Ruth to Naomi or from Boaz to Ruth. It's a love story of you for us. As the women around Naomi proclaimed, Blessed be the Lord, for this day He has not left you without a Redeemer. Father, this morning our prayer is that you would take each one of our common, ordinary lives and make it uncommon for you. Father, would you, in my life, make a difference that goes that's utterly disproportionate, disproportionate to who I really am? Even if I never see it, even if by faith it's something that literally goes out three or four generations before it's obvious. Father, many of my brothers and sisters here this morning, in their setting, it's hard. They don't have clarity. It seems like you're not answering prayer. It seems like you're you're unaware or you're distracted with other, quote, more important things. Father, may this book of Ruth powerfully encourage their hearts that the story is not over yet. You are not done. We can trust your heart. And Father, some of us this morning are quite challenged by the characters in our story. Some of their sin and disobedience has splashed onto us. And that's hard. It's hard to be loving. It's hard to be gracious. It's hard to be forgiving. It's hard to extend mercy when it's an inconvenience. Father, would you extend your grace to us that we recognize we are so loved by you that we can then love others. And Father, for those this morning who would love to know where their story is going, they don't see the purpose, they don't see the intention, the good intention that you have right now. Lord, would you strengthen their faith to believe you for one more day, this day. Not only that it's going to end in some way that glorifies you and is good for us, but that, Father, you're able to take even the most painful, traumatic experiences of life and turn it for good. We can't do that, but you can. So, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters who that's where they are this morning that you would encourage them 
again, for one more day that you are worth trusting because you love us so deeply. Father, may the reality of this wonderful little book tucked away in the Old Testament continue to change my life, may it continue to change all of our lives, even though we come to a close in it now. Father, may we always be people that remember you are faithful and worth trusting. So pray this in Jesus' wonderful name. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. And here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www dot rancho baptist church dot org that's www dot rancho baptist church dot org have a great day in the lord and god bless you as you continue to walk with him